Hello world, this is Freelance Forum and I'm Jared Cunningham. Welcome to the first of our autumn series of podcasts. I'm joined by Philip O'Connor, who is an Irish journalist living in Sweden. And he's going to talk of us, talk with us about covering the far right, which has been an issue for some time in Sweden and unfortunately is becoming more of an issue in Ireland as well. Welcome, Philip. Thanks very much indeed, Jared. Uh, Philip, to start with, could you possibly just give us an overview of uh, the situation in Sweden and how it is that you came to be involved in covering this issue? It's one of those sort of fascinating things because Ireland is very sort of isolated. Uh, we didn't take part in the Second World War. We're a little sort of island, you know, on the outskirts of Europe. So we haven't really been part of the ebb and flow of European politics uh, for a long time. We'd never really had a sort of a strong left-wing faction in Ireland. So we haven't had a sort of a left or right divide really until very, very recently. So what interested me about it, Jay, was when I moved to Scandinavia in 1999, you know, you become very aware of that very quickly. You know, you, you were obviously aware of sort of Nazism and fascism in the 1930s, 1940s in Europe. But you kind of think that, you know, that uh, on D-Day or on, you know, VE Day or whatever, that, you know, this all disappeared. Now, we all know it didn't do that. So what interested me when I moved to Sweden first was to see how these things were still sort of bubbling under the surface. There were still people, there were still politicians out there talking about things that we thought that we put to bed, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago at the end of the Second World War. Um, for me, that was sort of embodied in a party called the Sweden Democrats. Now, the Sweden Democrats would have come out of the ashes of a, a Keep Sweden Swedish party, Bavaris Svenskt. And they were really, you know, the sort of old-fashioned Harrington jacket boot boy skinheads who were sort of trying to, you know, still trying to push the old sort of, you know, Hitler-loving uh, Nazism of, uh, you know, that we all came to know and despise during the Second World War. So that really wasn't working out for them. It's a very sort of marginal kind of politics. It's very, very difficult to, to sort of... Eat to bring other people into that. So what happened in the mid sort of 90s with the Sweden Democrats was it was essentially a rebranding. And the people who rebranded the party and who founded the party, they were also neo-Nazis. And so some of them had ties, actually. I think one of them actually served in the SS during the Second World War. That sort of thing is not good. It's not a good look in politics anywhere. But what happened was that a bunch of young men, mostly men from the south of the country, um, they sort of swapped the bomber jackets and the skinhead haircuts for slightly better haircuts and slightly better fitting suits. And they started this sort of mainstreaming uh, of the far right and far right ideas in Sweden. So things that you wouldn't have said, this country was sort of built on this, you know, post-war boom period of social democracy, where you had social partnership between the unions and the state. Homes were built. People had good, comfortable jobs. Uh, they were well looked after from the cradle to the grave, as the saying goes with the Swedish uh, welfare state. So these guys started to question all that then and they started to they started off from a very very low voter base so you're talking about fractions of one percent in 1999 in the european elections they were at a very very low ebb there but they started to to frame things differently so rather than talk about immigrants or immigration or you know they started to get into this idea of the cultural wars that we're hearing more and more of now um this idea that people couldn't be culturally assimilated that they couldn't actually sort of come into a, a society and be assimilated and become swedes just by dint of moving here from Chile or from Lebanon or from Syria or from Afghanistan. So they started up that and it was a very sort of fine form of, of uh, you know, there was no sort of, you know, uh, outright support for apartheid or for, or for overt racism. There was none of that anymore. More of a sort of an emphasis on the cultural differences between, you know, blonde haired, blue eyed people in Scandinavia. And that was where it really took off for me. So what I started to see then was more and more of this in the mainstream media. So the arguments that they were making, you know, that people could live in Sweden but never become Swedes, they started to turn up. 
up. September the 11th happened, and of course that was, you know, like steroids for Islamophobia all over the world. And then this idea that Islamophobia isn't um, compatible, or sorry, Islam isn't compatible with modern Western European democracy, that became the thing. So all these places became the battleground. And what I saw was the more you saw them get their talking points into the media, the more voters they got. So in over the course of a number of elections, they doubled their vote from 1% to 2% to 4% to 8%. Now, you can't get a party into the parliament in Sweden if it's under 4%, 4% right? You can't have a, like, you know, there's no independence getting elected here, like Healy Ray's, that kind of thing. You're always part of a party. Now, you can leave a party once you get in there and you can be what they call politically wild, so you can operate as an independent there. But it's a party system. And the Sweden Tem Democrats, I was actually with them uh, with another uh, journalist. His father's actually from Cork, I think, Ushin Cantwell, but he's born and raised here in Sweden. We were there the night that the Sweden Democrats got in, and I think it was in the 2010 election. And that was the start of it. So, you know, they sort of created a thin end of the wedge and they drove it in under the door. And all the time that they had the other political parties talking about their talking points, they were growing and growing and growing the whole time. And now, you know, on any opinion poll, you know, it could be anywhere between 16 and 20, 22%, which would make them the second largest party in Sweden behind the Social Democrats. So having seen that over the last 20 years and studied it and read all the books, that's just in Sweden. I've covered the trial of Anders Bering Breivik, who was a part of Fremskits Partiet, uh, the, the Progress Party in Norway. He was a member of that party. They weren't right-wing enough for him. And as we all know, he went on a bombing and gunning and uh, shooting rampage that killed 69 kids on an island, or 69 people, most of them kids on an island in Utøya in 2011. So we're kind of seeing the whole gamut and covered the whole gamut of what's happened up here from starting out as, you know, skinheads in bover boots to, you know, these suited and booted gentlemen who are now sitting in the parliaments all over. Scandinavia. Yeah. I'm just thinking in terms of Ireland at the moment, where would you see us along that spectrum? In terms of explicitly far-right parties, uh, they would still be in the last election at a fraction of 1%. On the other hand, it seems that particularly with COVID, you've, you've had this amplification and rallies that are being co-opted. Yeah. And at the same time, well, essentially, Jerry, I would say that, like the far right, as we know it in Europe, hasn't been necessary in Ireland because it was already catered for by the existing political parties, right? We have this idea, there was a columnist, I think it was uh, Mick Clifford in the Irish Times was saying, oh, you know, we don't have to worry about these people until they have a party and they get into parliament. They're already in parliament. We've seen, you know, in the history of the Irish Parliament, go back to Oliver J. Flanagan, we've seen anti-Semites. We've seen open racists get elected at the last election. So this idea that Irish democracy has nothing to worry about from the far right, the calls are already coming from inside the house, to quote that internet meme. There are already people in there. And this is the underestimation of it. This is, you know, we usually refer to the boiling of a frog. If you throw a frog into a pan of boiling water, it's going to jump back out again. If you put him into a pan of cool water and you start to boil it up, well, then he's not going to notice. That's what's happening here, right? So these forces are already at play. They're already very much established. We have the Catholic Church and their support of fascism in the 1930s to thank for that. So, you know, this is not some barren ground. Ireland is not some barren ground for the far right. It's actually very fertile ground and has been for a very, very long time. And this latest, you know, internet, social media based iteration of the far right, it's nothing new. 
these people have always existed in Irish society. To a certain extent, they might have been catered for by the mainstream parties or they've been marginalised, one or the other. And, you know, in that, you know, we really have to sort of reassess or recalibrate how we look at these things because there are people, you'll see people, you know, saying things in doll chambers and in the Senate and they're talking about things like, you know, uh, repatriation of funds by Nigerian pe people. You know, you, you can hear these dog whistles coming miles off if you know what you're looking at. But the problem, I would say, is that editors and journalists in Ireland don't recognise these things. They don't see these things for what they are. They don't see uh, the issue of trans rights being brought up at this time. They don't ask themselves, why is that coming up now? Why are the issues of uh, direct provision centres coming up now? Why are all these things coming up now? Why are they being framed in the way that they are being framed? And in doing that, in not being aware of these things, they're sleepwalking towards disaster. Because the other uh, aspect of that, the one thing that the Swedish media wasn't really prepared for was they were going, oh, you know, it's the marketplace of ideas. We should discuss these things. Uh, sunlight is the best disinfectant and all that, which turned out to be complete and utter nonsense. Because the debate that they are having or the debate that they think that they are facilitating is not the debate that's happening at all, right? So when the Sweden Democrats, the leader of the Sweden Democrats, a guy called Jimmy Orkesson, now here's a man who has sort of recast his entire history. You know, when you see him write or, or speak today about that, he goes on about immigrant gangs marching through his... There was no immigrant gangs in the school. There was no immigrants in the school. So the idea that he was in some way intimidated or threatened with violence by people when he went to school is a nonsense. But he writes this sort of, you know, romantic rewriting of his own history to be able to do these things. And he doesn't care. If I sit him down, you know, on a, on a talk show sofa and I butcher him for all the things that I know he's done and he said and he supported and the things that he's a blind, turned a blind eye to, uh, in his party, he doesn't care because essentially what I'm doing is I'm being the megaphone for what his party stands for. He'll happily sit back and have me make him look like an Egypt because essentially what I'm doing is I'm marketing him and his party for him. And not only that, I'm actually making him out to be the victim, right? So an awful lot of what we see from the far right talks about the elites. It talks about the liberal elites that sort of, you know, they're against everything that has to do with nationalism, that has to do with uh, masculinity, that has to do with all these things. And by us as journalists and by us as liberal thinking people attacking them, they see that as a victory and their voters see that as a victory and you only have to look if you set up a camera now outside Leinster House and you try to film the piece it won't take long before some Egypt walks by shouting fake news and how you're all liars and you're all selling a Soros agenda because that's where we're at that's who they're talking to they're talking directly to these people in one channel and they're using this other channel then which is the mainstream media the media as we know it playing by the rules that we're supposed to play by but we're actually just fanning the flames of what they're doing and the, the serious problem is that the, there are well-meaning people out there. I'm not saying that, you know, the people who are making the editorial judgments or writing these pieces are stupid. They're not. They're doing it for the best of reasons. But you're not playing according to the same rule book as what the far right is doing. And that's what we need to be so aware of. How then do you report a protest? How do you report on what's happening when people are refusing to wear masks without amplifying those uh, talking points, but still doing your job as a journalist to inform people about what's going on. I think that's very difficult, okay, because like it depends as well on the scale of the protest. A piece that Mick Clifford wrote, um, Mick wrote a piece, a sort of a, a kind of a both sides piece, and I know that that's unfair to him, you know, but I mean, he's a he's a big boy and he's well capable of looking after himself. But he he wrote a piece saying, you know, who are the real fascists here? You have anti-fascists behaving like fascists. You have fascists behaving like fascists. Ah, you know, who knows what's the difference of it? You know, now again, I'm being a little bit disingenuous, but just to create the thing there, he went to report on the protest, and the first question I would ask, because there was an anti-mass protest outside the doll, and then you had you know other protests who were there protesting about that protest, right? And the first question that needs to be asked is, do you need to report on this protest at all? 
right? If you look at the statistics, if you look at the opinion polls uh, the, and the calls that are made around the country to people saying, what do you think? Most people in Ireland agree with the measures that are being taken, right? Somewhere between 55 and 70% in the polls that I've seen in recent weeks would say, we think that it's the right thing to do. We think people should wear masks. We think the lockdown is okay, right? So if you have a handful of 40, 50, 60 people out there from social media, is this really something that needs reporting on? How many demonstrations have we in the country for various different things? And I can think of many causes, both left and right wing, that we've seen demonstrations about that have never made it into the newspapers at all. So the first editorial decision is, is this news? And that's the first editorial decision that has to be made about anything. Then if it is news, you have to decide, okay, what's, what angle are we going to take here? Who are these people? Who are we dealing with? You have to do your due diligence. You have to see who's behind it. Because essentially, the story really about those protests is not anti-mass. These people are, are no more anti-mass than they are anti-anything else, right? This is basically a recruitment effort for the far right. That's who's behind it, right? The fact that it's the National Party behind it will tell you, or to a certain extent are behind it, it, the people who are organizing these things all have links to these movements. And you can see them all on YouTube, you can see them all on Facebook. That's the story. The story is not that they're anti-mask protesters. The story is that the far right is co-opting COVID-19 to recruit. You know, and that's the way to report it. And when you've reported it, it, it to that extent, you know, we've seen it uh, when you, you saw around repeal the eighth and you saw around marriage equality, there was all this discussion about, you know, how many protesters or how many people attended a certain rally, how many didn't attend. Oh, this person says, you know, RT says 10,000 and the guards say 2,000. And all everybody got hung up on the numbers and how much support they had. And they were claiming people on buses passing by, if you like, as, you know, supporting their cause. And all of that loses sight of the why these things are happening. So, you know, it's a really difficult to things it's like what angle do you choose to report on there so my thing would be a the first thing is you focus on what why are these people protesting and they are not protesting whatever they tell you they're not protesting because of the lockdowns nothing to do with that at all it is to do with the fact that they're trying to recruit people and the second thing is then and this is not an opinion that I hold. This is something I've spoken to academic researchers about. Whitney Phillips, who's written a brilliant uh, paper called The Oxygen of Amplification. Go, Everybody needs to read that. Everybody working in the media needs to read that paper. And she would talk about, you can absolutely amplify an idea, but it all depends on what perspective you're amplifying that idea from. If you are amplifying the talking points, for instance, if you are letting people, like there was one TD recently who went out and said that uh, statistics on suicide and mental health were no longer being co collected uh, in Ireland since COVID-19 started, which is absolutely absolutely false. And it's also one of the talking points of the far right. They're saying, oh, you know, mental health, mental health, we have to open everything up because of this, right? It's absolutely false. So rather than amplifying that kind of thought or saying, hang on a second, that's not correct. Look at the victims. You have to look at who is the, who, who is the focus of the policies of these parties and these people who are standing up there? It could be Roderick O'Gorman, a man I don't have a whole lot of time for, but he was attacked and accused of uh, being a, like a paedophile apologist, but he was never really given a chance to sort of speak out about these things. He was just asked to, uh, to, to oh, you know, what do you think of this? Rather than that, so what really needs to be done here is if you want to cover the anti-mask protests, the, protest, the best way to do it is who is at risk from people not wearing masks? And I think the obvious ones would be healthcare workers, frontline workers in the, in the transport industry, it's been seen all over the world. The taxi drivers and bus drivers are suffering from these things. Uh, immigrant populations are suffering. Ask them what they think of the anti-mask protests, rather than the far right who are using this as a like you know as a lying cloth so as, as to cover up these recruitment processes that are going on. And this happens with everything because if you look at the the direct provision centre situation, right? So every time you want to open a direct provision centre, this is not just in Ireland. This happens absolutely everywhere across Europe. Every time you want to open it. There's usually a certain amount of secrecy because if the far right gets wind of it, all of a sudden there's, pro there's protests outside the building where, you know, the, the uh, 
the direct provision center is supposed to open up. And in many cases, the things get burned down before anybody ever moves in there. And that's like, you know, protesting about anti-mass is like saying, oh, you know, we're going to use planning permission law to talk about direct provision centers, right? It's nothing to do with planning permission. It's nothing to do with being anti-mask. And it's everything to do with racism. And until we see through these fig leaves, and until we're actually capable of calling these things out, well, then not only are we not doing our job as journalists, not only are we not reporting correctly, we're actually helping these people to market their ideas and, in inverted commas, to legitimize what they call their legitimate concerns, which are everything but legitimate. You mentioned anti-mask uh, protests and uh, anti-vaccine is another issue that uh, comes to mind that uh, the far right tends to latch on. Are there any other particular causes that should set up flags if journalists see uh, a protest about them? Or is it literally a case of any passing bandwagon? Uh, it kind of is that. I mean, essentially what you're always looking for uh, with far-right discourse, you're always looking for the emotive. And this goes to the far left as well. It goes for Islamism. It goes for militant republicanism. You're looking for the pulling the emotional strings, right? And you're also looking for things that cause very, very strong emotional reactions. There's, you know, there's no, co it's no coincidence now that the issue of trans rights has been co-opted. And that's something that we see in the media. If you go back maybe five years, in Irish and British media, there was little or no mention of, of trans people at all, whatsoever, none, right? So this has become something that it's like an open goal, right? The idea of uh, QAnon in the United States of America, when we talk about pedophilia, that's an open goal as well. There is nobody or virtually nobody on this earth who is pro-pedophilia, who thinks that pedophiles should get away with things. In the same way is that it's very easy for people to say that there are only two genders and to not have an understanding of trans or intersex people and to not even want to understand. It's also that thing, you know, one of the things that provokes an emotive response, and we saw it in the, the refugee crisis that occurred in 2015, uh, Sweden took in 163,000 refugees in the space of that year. Now, they've done everything since not to let in anymore. You know, they quietly sort of closed the door to absolutely everyone. But it was very, very easy for the far right to say, okay, these are young men of military age. Do you remember that particular thing that came up? It was like, oh, it's all young men of military age, okay? The first person that I interviewed, and this was entirely by accident, the first person that I interviewed uh, was a woman from Syria. That was the first refugee that I met in Sweden from that particular wave, you know, but you never hear of those stories. So anything that's particularly emotive and that's very, very black and white is to be questioned. You know, I'd be very, very susp like, suspicious of anybody bringing these very emotive cases to you. It's very, very easy to pick a case. You know, you'll see a video on YouTube of, say, you know, uh, Irish uh, Afro-Irish youths beating up somebody and that looks oh, they're all pigs they're all animals they're all dogs they shouldn't be here right anything trying to provoke an emotional response and discourage the questioning of that emotional response that is something that we should automatically have alarm bells about and again I'm sorry to say, but there are certain people that as soon as they open their mouths, you've got to ask, why are they doing this? And, you know, I'm not going to name any of them on this particular podcast, but I think we all know who the, the, the flag wavers uh, for the far right are at this moment in time. And you shouldn't be, we shouldn't be platforming these people. We shouldn't be giving them the time of day. We shouldn't be giving anything to their ideas and promoting them. You know, I wouldn't mention most of these people by name on social media, A, because they'd probably sue me, and B, because it's just not worth giving them the fame or the infamy that they're looking for. But again, anything that provokes those emotional responses that looks too good to be true, because the other side of it is, you mentioned the anti-vax thing there, Jay. Anything that's anti-science, anything that is cut and dried, anything that is to do 
with that exclusive kind of nationalism that people are trying to uh, trying to support, I, I'm very much for a, like an inclusive kind of nationalism. For me, Ireland is what it is, Sweden is what it is, and anybody's welcome to be part of it, to bring to it what they can and to take from it what they want. It's not for me or you or for anybody else to say what these things are. These things cannot be defined by their very nature. So anybody doing these things and wrapping themselves in a flag is also, you know, I'd be very, very suspicious of that. Because again, it is one of those things that like, Swedes have a habit uh, of, you know, they put up a little flag in their garden, you know, a little Swedish flag, and for a while there in the 80s and the early 90s, a lot of people were embarrassed to do that because they thought that it was going to be linked to this Keep Sweden Swedish movement. So they just stopped doing it, you know, putting it out in, in their garden or hanging it out their window when it was the National Day. And that's really a shame that people can't be proud of who they are, proud of their country and their community because it's being co-opted by these people. But anything to do with, you know, being anti-science, that, that's anti-factual, um, the ideas of setting up some sort of an elite that you think that, you know, that you disagree with. We all know that elites exist, but not in the same way that maybe these people do. But yeah, anything that looks like an open goal is definitely you know if, if there doesn't seem to be any room to maneuver there's always reason to question that just thinking on anything that causes an emotive reaction that's basically the definition of online trolling which would bring me to the next thing which is what kind of things can journalists do to combat disinformation online uh especially since sometimes it feels like uh, social media companies are actually part of the problem. I saw a tweet today, actually, the day we're recording, uh, with a little bit of video of Jack from Twitter there saying that um, they like the Holocaust denial is not a disinformation, a kind of disinformation that they have a policy for, which struck me as being one of the most weasley things I'd ever seen. You know, in terms of journalists doing it, what we need to realize is that we need to talk about race, we need to talk about transgender issues, we need to talk about anti-Semitism, we need to talk about many, many issues. But what we don't need to do is let trolls or let the far right decide the rules of the game. They don't get to decide the ground on which these battles are fought or the ground on which these discussions are to take place. Because as soon as you allow somebody to frame a discussion in a certain way, right? I'll often get the question uh, about Malmo and Sweden being the rape capital of the world or Sweden in itself being the rape capital of the world, right? Now, the far right has latched onto that. And the idea is they're trying to draw the parallel between mass immigration and rape, right? The reason that Sweden has one of the highest incidents of rape in the world is because virtually everything here is considered rape. A trigger warning now uh, for anybody who has been sexually assaulted or raped. Uh, digital penetration in Sweden uh, against the will of, of a person is rape. Okay, if it happens on two, three different occasions, it's counted as two or three different rapes. Um, situations of domestic violence, of domestic rape, of intimate partner violence, intimate partner rape, every incidence of that is counted as rape. And that is why when the law was changed at two different periods over the last 20 years, that you'll see an increase there. It's not because there's any more or any less people coming into the country from different cultures or from Islamic cultures or whatever they would have it. Indeed, I think I saw statistics from uh, the, uh, the Central Statistics Agency here that things actually dropped off after 2015, which absolutely wasn't what the far right wanted to see. But it's one of these things that over time, it's reasonably constant. It doesn't matter where it is in the country. What they do not seem to want to discuss is the fact that it's men most of the time doing these things. And this is the difference between, if it's up to me, I would frame it as a men's issue, as an issue of what are we as men doing to cure this, this pandemic of sexual violence that's been going on for thousands of years, rather than letting the far right frame the, the debate and saying where there is brown people, there is rape. So everywhere we go to take these discussions on in social media, I did go in for muting people a lot of the time, and now I just block them straight away. You can tell fairly instantaneously where the troll farms are, where the disingenuous actors 
narrators, where the unreliable narrators are coming from, I don't engage with them. Certain people, and you know, some of these would be household names. Some of these would be people that you would see or on the TV or hear on the radio there, but I absolutely do not get involved with them. I don't engage with them on a very, very low level, if at all. But for the most part, they're just completely blocked. Some of them are elected representatives as well, because I'm absolutely not discussing things in certain terms. I spoke at a conference for the Social Democrats many years ago, and they said it's the rights and dignity of other people as guaranteed under the UN Declaration of Human Rights. They are not up for discussion. I am not having those discussions with anybody. I don't care how legitimate anyone, a politician, a voter, a vox pop in the street, I don't care how legitimate you think your concerns are. I am not debating those things with you. And the more we try to do it, and the more we do that, because, you know, let's face it, we're looking for ears and eyeballs here for advertisers. The more we do that, we are actively harming the public discourse. We are actively harming people that we never let on the airways and that we never let into the op-ed columns to speak for themselves. And until we see that we are doing that as journalists, until we see that we are giving these people a platform to cause this immense harm, well then, you know, we're no closer to solving this thing. And, you know, again, without naming any names, we've seen it in, both in the recent past and in the, sort of the, the medium to long-term history that we've had in the media of Ireland, we have a shameful history of platforming a lot of these people, even though they are politicians, because I, again, I don't care if you're an elected representative. I am not debating these things with you. These things, the dignity of women, the humanity of women, that's not up for grabs. The same thing goes for gay people or transgender people or African people or Muslims or wherever it happens to be. So the sooner we move these debates to where they're supposed to be and where the actual answers lie, because many times we have these debates that go round and round in circles about, oh, you know, our children need a mother and a father. Well, that's fantastic. What are we doing about that? Rather than saying that gay people or insinuating that gay people are pedophiles, can we not look at the issues that stop children from having parents, the issues of poverty, the issues of addiction, all the other issues around uh, the issues around family law that we should be discussing instead of trying to infer that LGBT people are pedophiles? I think one of the things that is worth uh, taking into account is the safety of journalists in terms of reporting these things, and especially of freelance journalists. And as you well know, Jared, this is something that's very close to my heart. There are two forms of it, right? One is the operational security. So if you're going to cover um, marches where the far right are taking place or, or where they are present, if you're going to cover anything that there might be counter demonstrations or anything else like that, you need to consider your own safety like first and foremost, you need to think about that. Right? I was told many years ago, I've been in the lucky position of having a fairly big media organization behind me that has put me through all manner of hostile environment training and that they provided support for me when I've been going into situations that haven't been easy. And the first thing they would say to you is no story is worth your life or your health, right? You go ahead and take risks as a freelancer. I do. We all do at some point if we're reporting on stories like this, right? But you have to be able to make the judgment of, okay, how do I get into this story? How do I get as close to it as possible? And how can I be sure that I'm going to get out of it? And that is literally the rule I have when I go to report. I don't go into any situation that I don't know that I can get. It's not enough to think that I can get out of it. I have to know that I can get out of that situation as quickly as possible if the case arises. Now, that's a whole other podcast. It's a whole other series of podcasts about how we should take care of ourselves. And the other thing is, the online space, right? So we will see, I think there was a, a journalist who wrote an article recently for the Longford Leader about a Polish woman who'd been subject to uh, the attentions of the far right recently. And not only is the Polish woman getting attacked for it, but the journalist who wrote the story is also getting attacked for it. And there's two things that we need there. We need editors to support people in that situation. We need editors to go out there and to go into bat for their freelancers, for their staff journalists, and to protect them and to help them and to offer them support and, if needs be, counselling that they need. But we also need a sense of solidarity among journalists as well because the far right are no friends of a free press. They're all about free speech 
when they're being allowed to say what they want to say and when you're agreeing with them. But as soon as you say anything different or as soon as you start to shine a light, usually on their finances or usually on their own criminal records, because as it turns out, Sweden Democrats are actually more liable to have a criminal record than any immigrant in this country. But I digress. Uh, we need to have a sense of solidarity there where we support one another. And if we see people getting piled on online, that we try to protect those people, it doesn't necessarily have to be in public. Many times it could be that if I see that you've written about something of the situation in the northwest of Ireland, that I send you a message of support there, that I say, I'm here for you if you need to talk to me about anything and I would say that to anybody listening to this podcast who's reporting on these kinds of stories or anything else my DMs are always open on Twitter my mail address is out there for all to see and if anybody in the National Union of Journalists or any other journalist whether you're a member or not has a feeling that these things are getting too much they're more than welcome to get in touch with me because that sense of solidarity it starts with you and me and the people listening there that we have to back one another up because if I start to feel isolated and I start to feel alone well then the next thing that happens is I start to think that these stories are not worth me reporting on. They're not worth my emotional energy. They're not worth the damage to my reputation and my career. If you go into the darker corners of the internet, you'll find people calling me all sorts, you know, everything from, you know, paid off by Soros to a pedophile apologist to whatever, uh, you know, doesn't care. I hope his children are raped. I've had photographs sent to me of my house. I've had people tell me that they know where my children go to school and that kind of thing. That's all par for the course, right? Now, if I didn't have that sense of solidarity from another, a number of other journalists, that fear probably would have gotten the better of me. And I would have stopped talking to people like you about things like this. And we can't do that. We can't ever have a situation because, you know, it's like that old sort of misappropriated quote that you'll see uh, in the Auschwitz Museum, if you go there, first they came for the journalists, and after that we don't know what happened. And we just absolutely cannot allow that to happen. And if others aren't going to support us and others aren't going to protect us, well, then we have to support and protect ourselves. Okay, Philip, thanks very much. That's fairly comprehensive. <laughs> thanks very much. Man. And as I say, you know, I'm open to all questions and any questions that anybody might have on the subject. It's just a case of getting in touch. I should say, if you have a blog, uh, if you Google our man in Sweden, that... Yeah, our man in Stockholm, yeah. So I've been going by that... Uh, but that, and then you'll find me at, at Philip O'Connor on Twitter or just Google Philip O'Connor and I'll turn up there some annoying bloke you know and as I say everybody's welcome to get in touch perfect thank you uh, the Freelance Forum is made possible by support from the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland and the National Union of Journalists I'm Jared Cunningham you've been listening to me talking with uh, Philip O'Connor uh, thank you for listening <laughs>